Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. Today, Judy is in conversation with Chella Mann, who is a deaf, genderqueer, transmasculine, Chinese, and Jewish artist, model, filmmaker, and now author. You can pre-order his book, Continuum Now. Chella is always doing so many new and exciting projects, so you definitely have to follow him on social media. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell, and Judy Human. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet our guest today. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. And you can see that Shella and I are kind of suppressing some laughter um, because it's really been an, an honor for us to get to know each other over the last number of months. And in some way, you know, we're an intergenerational mix on so many levels. And then he's teaching me so much um, about aspects of life that I'm very happy to learn about. So Chella. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. So my name is Chella Mann. I am a 22-year-old deaf, trans, genderqueer, Asian, Jewish artist. And I'm honored to be here. And I can say the same to Judy about teaching me so much. And just, it's been like an honor and a privilege to get to know her. So um, Becca and Stevie, who I work with, and uh, we're using really beautiful terms to describe who he is. Uh, some of them are beautiful, beautiful mind and being. And oh. so, Chella, as you know, I say frequently about you, you are in many ways a man before your time. And by that I mean you've gone through so many changes in your life. At the and by the age of 22 and it's not just that you've been evolving because we all do but your ability to express that evolution I think is what particularly attracts me to much about you so maybe if we could just step back a little bit and when um, did your family first know that you had some form of a hearing loss well well thank you first of all for all of that I feel flattered um, and I'm probably blushing, but I was first diagnosed when I was four years old and we don't really know, it was never clear why or how, so it could have likely been when I was born I've had it and they just didn't know because they didn't test me for um, hearing back then. And since then, um, I mean, it, talk a little bit more about your mother and the role your mother played in your life overall because she, seems to be a very powerful woman. She is a very powerful woman. My mom is, I feel like one of the reasons I was able to get through everything that I did. You know, she is a, a rock in my support system. She has taken it upon herself to fully educate herself on disability issues, specifically deaf, like the deaf community and all of the controversy with like getting cochlear implants and you know learning sign language and 
just went out of her way to really speak with people who were in that community and not just listen to people who, you know, were easiest, like the people around her as a hearing woman. It could have been very easy to just, you know, enroll me in speech therapy and not learn sign language for me, but she has actively gone out of her way since the moment I was diagnosed with, with a hearing loss to assess all options possible. And I will always be grateful for her for that. So what were the options that she started uh, laying out there for you when you were young? So the first option was I had this in kindergarten, actually. I had this super clunky, like, giant speaker that I'd have to carry around on my desk. You know, and of course, like, I had to give all the teachers my FM system and, um, you know, learn how to advocate for myself, starting with, you know, in kindergarten. And of course, like, the kids would make fun of that and, um, like, yell into the FM system and not take it seriously or respectfully. But that was one of the first accommodations I had. That was really like my first realization that, you know, like my life's the way I go about life will be a little different than the other kids. In addition to that, hearing aids, you know, since the beginning, you know, at first I was very resistant, very stubborn. Um, I always have been. But after a while, I, I realized that I wanted them. And this is the one thing that I always appreciate about my mom as well. She would always wait until I consented to these accommodations before she put them on me. So she would wait until I would be like, you know what, okay, yeah, like, let me try the hearing aids because I was very resistant at first and she would never force me to do that, which I'm, I'm grateful for because I think there would be a lot more trauma to unpack had I been forced to wear and do all these things that I wouldn't prefer. Um, and then growing up, you know, it was cart, um, taking a little mini desk computer around to all my classes and hooking it up and making sure the Wi-Fi was good. So like the person transcribing and a far away place that I realized I don't really know where they were, but they were transcribing everything that they were hearing. And I also had an interpreter for three years. And then I had cochlear implants. And that was another thing that I'm grateful for my mom waiting for me to consent to. And once I felt like I actually wanted them, she was extremely supportive. And I'm grateful that she has just given me all the options. Of course, in addition to that sign language, starting in third grade, we had a teacher come over and, you know, teach us. But of course, to learn a language, you truly have to be immersed in it. And so I would pick it up every now and then, but there were no other deaf people in my life. There were no other disabled people that were like impactful and, and anyone that I was close to. So that's something I wish I had. But I'm grateful for those early sign language lessons regardless. And today I'm still working on fully connecting to my deaf chosen family, which I like to call them. So you define yourself as being transgender. And I'd, I'd like if you could give us a little bit of information about the journey that you've been on. Because just like with the discussion of your hearing loss and how you've moved from one stage to another, uh, you started 
on this journey when you were quite young and wondering if you could share a little bit about this journey, but also, you know, you so eloquently discuss this in, in many ways and in the book that will be coming out, it's an important part of what you've written about. So if you could talk to us a little bit about that, please. Absolutely. So for me, I've always known that I've trans, meaning that I always have this disconnect with my body and my mind. I always, that is, that's the classic indication that a trans person can have. And of course it started out very stereotypically as I was introduced to feminine things. I was, I would reject them and I would watch other people grow up and notice the way their bodies would adapt. And I would just know deep down that I didn't want my body to do that. And I would almost dread it. I would, I would dread puberty, you know? And I always remember, I remember thinking like when I was a little kid, these are probably gonna be the best years of my life because my body kind of looks like everyone else's my age. In addition to all of these gendered objects and stereotypical things such as like color, etc., and like activities, it was also just the way that I carried myself. I felt like every move I made had to be monitored because it didn't stereotypically fit into what was feminine. And so I found myself observing in like circle time when all the kids would sit like crisscross applesauce on the carpet, I would find myself observing what the girls were doing and just do my best to copy them because by default, my body just wouldn't, I just didn't do that. And I was scared. I didn't feel safe. I felt like my inherent mannerisms like gave me away, you know, an outed which is something that a lot of queer people unfortunately face, which is another thing that just shouldn't be gendered, of course. Like the way that you move, what has that to do with anything about, you know, anything? So from a very early age, I always knew that my body just did not connect with my mind. And I didn't really know what that meant because I didn't have the resources and the language to articulate this. When I got older and when puberty hit, I felt like the only option for me at the time was to do my best to take all of that research I had learned from watching femme people and girls and just trying to be that and just live this performance, live this lie essentially, because I didn't know what trans was. I didn't have any representation. I was. I grew up in a small town in central Pennsylvania that was very conventional. I always sum it up by saying Trump came to speak at my high school and that's kind of the area that it was. And so I just felt like there was no other option. And so for my own safety and basically like the, the only option I felt like I had, I tried to fit in, you know, and I grew out my hair and I wore the clothes, the very clothes that I didn't connect with. And it felt so painful, you know? Um, I felt like my life wasn't mine anymore, but I had to do it for my own safety. 
Luckily, I graduated high school early and I came to New York. Well, your mother played an important role in that, right? Absolutely. So my mom, it got to a point in high school that I was in this cycle of depression. I would go to school, I would come home, and I would sleep. I'd go to school, I'd come home, and I'd sleep. And this is, for me, what, what I was doing was a coping mechanism for me to stay alive, essentially, called dissociation, which is a lot of things that a lot of which is a coping mechanism that people who have experienced trauma often resort to, to desensitize themselves to really painful things happening in their life. So that's what I was doing. And I'm grateful for it, honestly, at the time, because it's what got me through living in, in the body that I didn't connect with around people that I couldn't relate to. And so my mom saw this. And although she didn't have the connections to understand what was truly happening to me, she knew I had to leave. She knew I had to get out of the area I was in and that I needed to be exposed to something else, a different life. And so she looked into early college acceptance programs and she found this junior acceptance program at Parsons in New York City. And the deadline was a week away um, and I come from a very academic family, so I was lucky to have taken like all the necessary tests like ACT, SAT beforehand. And a week before, we got everything together and we applied and I got in. And, and I still remember that day that she called me and just told me that like, that she had found that option and that there was a potential for me to get out. And I just felt like the portal or I don't know a portal open up of just hope and it sounds very cheesy but I don't know how else to describe it and then I left I skipped senior year and I came straight to New York and of course like this is a queer hub like I met trans people I I met people I saw gay people walking down the street holding hands which is something you would never see where I grew up and it just restored my 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 hope for humanity i felt like i had time traveled like 150 years into the future which i feel like i kind of did like portal you know so from there i i was able to befriend other trans individuals and trans individuals who told me about the stereotypes of gender and the stereotypes and misconceptions within the queer community such as you know having to look a certain way to claim a certain identity, which is never true, um, the gender binary. And this has led me to present myself the way I do, which is stereotypically masculine, but I identify as genderqueer or non-binary, which means that I just don't subscribe to the gender binary. I feel like who I am is beyond that and cannot be encompassed by two choices. Um, at the age of four, your family learned that you had a hearing loss. When did you start um, your creativity in art? Oh man, as soon as I, I could, you know, as soon as I could hold a, a cram. And I, I remember I picked up like trash bags and I would go around my house and I'd be like, is there anything anyone doesn't want? Like any junk or anything? And like if they had stuff, I would like shove it into the trash bag. And then by the end, you know, I had like this weird 
collection of junk. And I would sit down and I would like make time machines. I would make robots. I would make, you know, whatever I wanted to, whatever I could imagine. I was reading a lot of Calvin and Hobbes back then. So, you know, like they do stuff like that. And I think that inspired me, but it just allowed me to reimagine what was possible with what I had in front of me. And I think the idea, that idea was so beautiful to me. And I wanted to, I wanted to play with it farther in different mediums beyond sculpture. I'm, I don't, I don't really create many sculptures now. Maybe that's a sign that I should. But now I end up doing art such as the art behind me, and I draw and I draw all over everything. Like, is there other artwork that we can quickly see? Um, not not nearby me, but I mean the other artwork that you could see is actually on my body, which is all the tattoos I have um, are designed by me. I feel like I can't imagine having another person's art on my body. I feel like my body is so sacred and, and just for myself that I just want my own art on my body. Have you studied art prior to coming to New York? No, I have not. I went to a very conventional high school, and ironically, I did not even really study art at Parsons. I studied virtual reality programming, which is a lot of computer science, and um, I had these visions of wanting to create simulations where able-bodied people or cisgender people could put on this headset and be immersed in a simulation where they could experience life the way I experienced life which is something that I still want to do. But at this point, instead of programming it myself, I want to creatively direct a project like that. Well, I'm sure you will be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed. So when you came to New York, you were discussing how you were finding uh, so many different communities. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about the importance of these communities. And because you've got the Jewish community, the uh, trans community, the Asian communities, on and on. How have you been melding those into your being? They are the very foundations that have fueled me. You know, they are, they allow me to imagine what's possible for myself. And they allow me to feel represented, you know, even like they don't, it's the kind of representation that is so intimate because rather than seeing it on a magazine, you can talk to them, you can sit with them, you can cry with them and hold them. And that just that has been so healing. And I have gone out of my way to establish my own chosen communities, chosen families in that sense. And from that, I've been able to heal so deeply and understand that what I went through is not something that is other, you know, like discrimination is mass experience and people don't have to be my exact identities to understand what I went through and feel what I went through. I think that human beings all go through similar things, but similar cycles, but they're all for different reasons. I was just going to say that 
I think what's been a real wonderful model about your life is your mother and I assume your family overall really um, going on a journey with you and they didn't know where that journey was going to lead. No. No. Does your mother speak with other mothers um, who have children who are trans? How does your mother continue to play a role in allowing people to understand the journey that she's on with you? My mom definitely speaks with a lot of queer individuals and queer parents um, and queer kids. She's actually a um, pediatrician, and so she works a lot with children and has a lot of trans patients, actually, which is really incredible. And um, so she's, she's constantly in conversation about all queer things. And um, I mean, in terms of my family, I always say I just won the family lottery. Like, they may not have understood at first, but what they were willing to do is go out of their way to understand and unpack and unlearn all of the toxic misconceptions that we are presented with in, in mainstream society. And that's a lot of energy, but it's also, it's also a lot of love. And that's what they had, and I'm so grateful for it. I was gonna say, and you're such a blessing in their life also. Thank you, thank you. I mean, it's really, I think, um, the fact that you are able to be so expressive of who you are and really uh, publicly expressive because it's such an intrinsic, not only part of who you are, but I think very much something that you feel is important to share with other people. When, when did that part of you begin to emerge where you felt the importance of being more public about who you are? Oh man, it was as soon as I had the language to it. As soon as I really connected the dots and was building up that those chosen families that we spoke about, as soon as I was healed enough to be like, you know what, I'm at a point where I have the resources, the community and the stability mentally and physically to be able to share this with people. That's a huge privilege, but people go their whole lives without having that privilege. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. And I, I just don't want anyone older or younger to have to go through what I did and experience that scarcity and confusion and lack of representation because the world is so much more beautiful with us in it, with people who are queer, with disabled people, with BIPOC people. It's so much more colorful, you know, like it just opens up this door of possibilities, not just for like us, but for people who, who just don't even know about these other options. It's just a whole, it's just a whole nother world of, of abundance. And I don't think people realize how, how much scarcity we live in because they're not aware of the other options. I think the word abundance for you is a completely right on word. Oh, um, abundance you. also 
because of your talents. So um, you've also been doing modeling. How did you get into that? Oh, that was weird. That was out of the blue. Um, I had a friend when I had just moved to New York who was a model. And he had a photo shoot and we were hanging out that day. And so he was like, would you want to tag along? Um, and so I was like, okay. And I went and just like, I remember walking into the studio and it was so beautiful. Like, anyway, that was besides the point. So um, I was just sitting on the side and the photographer walked over to me and was like, hey, you have a really cool look. This is um before I started testosterone, before top surgery. I was bald. I looked very queer um stereotypically of course and he was like hey would you want to shoot a few photos and i was like oh okay like why why not just why not um and it was really interesting because i think it forced me to connect with my body more to be able to model you have to be able to know how to hold your body you have to be grounded and present in your body to give to the camera to give that art and I think modeling really also played a large part in connecting my mind to my body again and making me realize there was a disconnect. So I got into modeling kind of accidentally that way. Are you still modeling? I am, yeah, every now and then. It's honestly a really fantastic way to meet people you would have otherwise never met. So, um... Where do you see yourself moving over the next couple of years? What are some of your objectives for your future? I, I see myself with, with Mary B, my partner. I see myself with my family more. I'd love to, of course, post-pandemic travel more and just see more of the world. I truly feel like it's like you fly to another planet because the culture is so different. I, I want to do that more. I, I find myself continuing to build those communities and strengthen my relationships with them. And I'd love to write more um, in addition to this book. I'd love to write and incorporate my art more, perhaps make a few art books and um, always make art. I mean, other than that, I'm very open to like wherever it takes me, but I just want to be able to, you know, be present and be grateful and, and, and like enjoy the, the richness of life as much as possible. Why has the deaf community been so important to you? Oh, because I just felt like I was living a different life, you know, growing up, not knowing anyone else who was deaf or hard of hearing, I couldn't talk to people without having to explain like a scroll of different things. They just wouldn't understand. And when I talk to other deaf people or hard of hearing people, that scroll isn't, un isn't necessary. I'm just, they get it. There's so much less energy that is needed because they just get it. And that is what community is, you know, being able to, conserve that energy, keep it for yourself, and like understand like your, why that connection is so sacred. I mean, they've also like enabled me to imagine a future. Like 
as a, as a deaf parent. I've always had trouble communicating with children because of um, like the way they like mumble or their high pitched voices. I can't hear them that well. Um, and then I, I had the pre the pleasure and privilege of meeting the Ridloffs, Doug Douglas and Lauren Ridloff, who are beautiful, beautiful human beings. Um, they are both both deaf and they have two deaf sons and meeting them and seeing their family uh, in one day, like enabled me to be like, I think I can have a family in the future. It's just so important. I mean, it's changed my life. So tell us about Mary V. Oh, okay. Where do I start? It relates to this whole issue also of family and community and You've known her now for how many years? Um, almost five. We've been dating for like four and a half years. Yeah. And how you met her, I thought was quite beautiful. Oh man, yes. So we met at a, I actually just had to tell this story. So um, I was 17, I was pre-testosterone. I was um, pre-pop surgery. I didn't even connect the dots fully that I, I was trans, um, but I knew I was queer. So I showed up at a, it was like a classic college party in, in Brooklyn and, and, you know, like kids were hanging out the window, like the top floor, like smoking. And um, this was like the first week of college. So neither of us really knew anyone. So we went to this party though, um, in hopes to meet people. And I walked in and I saw her like across the room. And we both have different interpretations about how this went. So she would probably tell it a different way. But I think possibly that I went up to her and I just remember, I distinctly remember thinking like she's the coolest person in the world and she's so beautiful. Um, she's like vibrant red hair and um, like beautiful freckles. And I went up and like, or she went up if she was on so. And I was like, um, what's your name? My name's Chella. And she was like, Mary V. Um, and she said, I like your hair. And I thought that was so ironic because I was bald and I was like, oh, I don't have hair, but she's cute. So ha ha, like, that's so funny. And then so um, we talked a little bit and then we got split up. And at the end of the night, I ran into her again. And I knew, I was like, I will regret this forever if I leave this party and I don't ask her out. And stereotypically, she looked very straight. But of course, I was like, fuck stereotypes. I don't believe in that. So I was like, I'm going to shoot my shot. And I was like, this is really crazy, but would you want to go out sometime? And she paused. And that was like the longest pause of my entire life. It was very scary. And then she was like, yeah. And I was like, yes, like in my head, I didn't actually do that. But um. Little did I know, she had thought that I was asking her to hang out as friends because, you know, at the time she actually identified straight, but she's not. Good thing for me. Um, <laughs> and of course, like on the first date, I flirted so much that she realized it was a date. And, you know, it was a very clunky beginning as she was really coming into her queerness, but it all worked out. And the rest is history. So you've been together at four, four and a half, five years. You live in Brooklyn. Yes. Yeah. So 
I'm from Brooklyn. You know I'm from Brooklyn, and so I'm very happy uh, that you have found a lovely place in Brooklyn. <laughs> your mother is Jewish, and your father, uh, what is your father's background? My father, uh, he's Chinese. So you have this mixture of so many parts. How have you... Um, you know, being Jewish is also something that you speak about and its importance for you. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, why, why have you chosen coming from a small town where being Jewish was, again, yet another minority? Uh, what, is, what is it about being Jewish and Asian and everything else that is of value to you? That's a great question. I mean, growing up, being Jewish, I would attend Sunday school. Uh, I would go to synagogue every morning. And there is when I feel like I truly learned about the resilience that people can have. Because at a very early age, they talk to you about the Holocaust. And it's a lot to digest as a kid to hear about the Holocaust, especially as, um, like, my own family, my, my great aunt, uh, passed away because of the Holocaust and she was pregnant at the time. So that's been a very painful part of my family's history. Um, she, she died in, not in a concentration camp, but she was forced to like help out the Nazis in return for her life. And then it, of course they ended up using her in the end, which is terrible, story. very sad, but, um, Learning that when I was very young, I was truly able to understand the extremities that humanity could go to. Number one, how evil human beings can be, but at the same time, how resilient and how strong human beings can be. And I feel like that set me up to fully understand, almost like foreshadow some things I was gonna face myself. And so I've always been very appreciative of learning that history very early on and having my Jewish family there to like ask questions, you know, and talk about discrimination and feel community, you know, truly like feel community and, um, and culture, of course. So I feel like that always, that just greatly impacted me learning that. And I think like, to this day, I still process its effects on me. In addition to that, one of the most amazing things that, that I had was that my rabbi was gay and he was out. And in the area we were in, he was like the only queer person that was out. And he was my rabbi. Like, that's so cool. So I never had to question, like, would I be accepted? Like, if I was queer, like the rabbi was gay. So I was like, oh, I'm good. You know? So that was, that was, that had a great effect on me as well that I'm still processing. One very quick last question. Do you like yeah. to cook? I, I, I'm trying to, I have a, I, I lack patience, so, but I, I do enjoy cooking. What are some of your favorite foods? Oh, man. Jewish foods? Whatever. Okay. Okay. Um, the first thing I can think about is like chocolate peanut butter cake. That's so good. Um, 
I love that. I love horosis. I love it. Yes, yeah. I mean, I can just, you, you can like blend up 10 apples and I'll like eat them all. Horosis um, is something uh, that we use as part of the service for Passover in the Seder. Yes, yeah. It's like dessert, you know, for an appetizer or, or an, I guess in my case, an entree. <laughs> but, um, you use it as part of the service and if it's good, you make a lot of it so people will eat it after and for days. Well, Chella, we are unfortunately at the end of this discussion, but uh, let me say really how much I appreciate you, um, how my whole team really appreciates you because of how you bring your whole self uh, into everything that you do. And I believe you're a really important model for people of any age to recognize moving through that struggle and really trying to find who we are, which changes every day, is really such a critical part of life. So, um, Chella, would you just quickly tell us about your upcoming book? Yes, so my upcoming book is titled Continuum, and it's part of this collection called The Pocket Change Collective, um, published by Penguin. And it's written for 14 plus ages. Um, it's a super condensed version of my story. It's basically like reading my diary. And I'm really excited for it to come out because I didn't, I worked very hard to make a lot of issues that are seen as complex within our world very simplistic and basic because I truly believe they are at its core. So that is coming out um, June 1st this year, 2021. And it's available for pre-order now. It's a beautiful book and I encourage you all to order it and to read it and to share it. So thank you, Chilla. I will talk with you soon. And um, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for being who you are and thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That history won't forget us. You've been tuning in to The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week's guest was Chella Mann. You can find links to Chella's website in the episode description below and on our website. Be sure to follow Chella at Chella Mann and at Chella Mann Art on Twitter and Instagram. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Juaren. And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. And follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. Look around.